The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit www.gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another special edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. In this edition, graduate Michael Spangler presents an argument for the spiritual usefulness of Reformation-era Protestant Latin poetry. He focuses particularly upon the poetry of Theodore Beza, and he even reads for us in verse some of Theodore Beza's Latin renditions of the Psalms. This paper was originally delivered at Liberty University's Reformation 500 Conference, which was held towards the end of September 2017. Tune in and enjoy. My topic for today is Latin poetry for personal worship, particularly looking at Theodore Beza's Latin metrical songs, which I have in my hand, and you might not have expected this blessing when you came here, but you're going to get to hold in your hand a 16th century Latin book. Uh, Reprinted. I don't have that much money. But uh, you can take a look and enjoy this book that has been a large part of my study in the past year. You might think, though, that approaching the legacy of Reformation personal worship through the angle of Latin poetry is a little bit strange. But it does have to do with it. You might think a dead language has nothing to do with stimulating a life of Christian devotion. But it was not true for Theodore Beza. The answers to the question of what does Latin have to do with worship may surprise and challenge you as Protestants. For Beza, writing Latin poetry was an important part of his personal devotion to Christ and for promoting that devotion among God's people. We will begin with Beza's biography, Move on to consider his Latin metrical psalms and then explore what they teach us about the place of Latin poetry and of literary study in general in the reformer's personal worship. Theodore Beza, perhaps a name you haven't heard. I'd be interested. How many of you have heard the name Theodore Beza? Okay. Well, you're going to hear it now. How many have heard the name John Calvin? Okay, good. You were listening an hour ago. Good. Uh, Theodore Beza was the colleague of Calvin in Geneva. He was born in 1519 in France. He began his literary training at age nine in the house of the famous Protestant humanist named Melchior Volmar, who also taught Calvin. Beza called his arrival at Volmar's home a second birthday. And for many years afterward, he praised his teacher for the serious formation he gave him in the ancient authors, that is, the great Greek and Roman authors, including poets. He later wrote to Volmar, There was no worthy writer I did not sample, whether Greek or Latin, in the seven years I lived with you. Now, I want you to note well, this means that according to Beza's own testimony, he had studied all the best works of Latin and Greek literature by the time he was 16. And that would be not so strange among the Protestant reformers. Many would have had an education like that. After his time with Volmar, Beza went on to study law, also like many of the reformers. But he spent the better part of his school day pursuing his love for literature. So instead of spending his college years partying, he spent it reading books that weren't assigned to him. He did receive a law license, but never developed a law career. Instead, he spent day after day reading 
and writing Latin poetry with a circle of like-minded friends. Beza published his first collection of Latin poems to great acclaim in 1548. It featured a great variety of poems and even included a few racy love songs to an anonymous mistress named Candida. Beza, however, came to regret his youthful bohemian literary life when the Lord in his kindness converted him to Christ and to the evangelical faith. He fled France for Geneva in 1548, only months after he published his first poetry book. He renounced the indiscretions in his published poems, became estranged from his former poet friends, and would continue throughout his adult life to have to defend himself against the criticisms of his early excesses, which Roman Catholics loved to use as ammunition against him. What he never renounced, however, was his gift and his interest in writing poetry. Though Basil was truly a new man, with new desires, a new home, and a new career, he was still Theodore Beza, the poet, and he remained so throughout his long life. Indeed, the last years of his literary life were marked by an even greater poetic production than the first. This is during his time in Geneva, serving with John Calvin as a minister of the gospel, also as an educational leader and a teacher. In 1550, he published Abraham's Sacrificing, the first neoclassical verse drama ever written in French. He contributed over 100 French psalms to the Genevan Psalter, one of the most famous hymnals of the Reformation period, the completed edition of which was published in 1562. In 1580, he published his Icons, a beautiful book that is full of pictures and poems that praise various reformers, educators, and magistrates. It's basically a Reformation Hall of Fame. In 1584, he wrote a Latin metrical version of the Song of Songs, for which he got into some trouble. Not because of the content of the Song of Psalms, but because there was one Roman Catholic who did not care for the meter that he chose to write them in. <laughs> in 1591, Cato the Christian Censor. It was a collection of small Latin poems warning various types of sinners. If you want an amazing book about Latin poetry in the Reformation, Morality After Calvin, Basis Christian Censor and Reformed Ethics by Kirk Summers. One of the best books I've ever read on Reformed Ethics. I'd highly recommend it. In 1595, a collection of biblical songs in French, and finally in 1597, a deluxe edition of his Latin poetry. And this illustrates that he continued to be a poet very clearly because it included many poems from the original book that he published in 1548. A few were removed. In addition, he wrote verse for special occasions and would sometimes even conclude letters to friends with a short Latin poem written just for them. In sum, though it is most appropriate to speak of Beza as a Protestant reformer, a churchman, and a theologian, we do not have a complete picture without also recognizing him to be a Protestant poet. And indeed, that title not only seems appropriate to us as we look back on his lifetime of poetic work, it also describes well how his contemporaries viewed him. As we approach Beza's book of Latin Psalms, let us consider a poem included in the introduction in the first pages of that book that you're passing around. And in your handout, first page, in which an anonymous admirer calling himself a godly reader, as I've put it, a reverent reader, praised Beza for his many gifts. The anonymous reverent reader in the first 17 lines combined images of Psalms 1 and 2, as you can read on your own. 
aware perhaps that they were going to be placed right in the front of the book of Psalms and Psalms 1 and 2 would come as the introduction to that book. And they use that to praise Beza. The stalwart reformer, as you'll read, is like a large aged tree whose well-fixed roots hold him firm against the wild winds, pagan Jupiter, false religions, kings, criticism, and even death. For in all these things he's made up his mind, as you'll see on line 16, which means to worship Christ while tyrants rage in vain. The author moved on to describe Beza's egregias dotes, as you can see in line 16, 17. And I'll read just a bit from line 18 onwards so you can get a sense of how this Latin poem sounds. Armene secretos musaren sistere calles. Dignus quaeter nacin garis tempora lauro, praeque vaustonis grais galis quecanenis, Davidicos aptare modos et nabria sacra gressus, sacri merito fers nomina vatis. Now I've translated into English and trying to preserve some of the poetry. Your virtues, if I may, now let me tell. You tread with skill the muse's secret paths. And win the laurel crown of every age. Indeed, in Latin, Greek, and even French, you tune great David's lyre to sweetly play and justly earn the name of Holy Bard. Now, note how Beza, the early modern Christian, has become the master of the ancient pagan muses. Like Virgil, a poet laureate, and like Homer, a bard, but unlike them in the most important way, he was a holy bard. That word sacri, which means holy, is given special emphasis by its placement well before the noun it describes, watis. Beza, according to this poet, mastered and transformed pagan models in his Christian poetry. But lest we think Beza was only a poet, we read in lines 23 to 25, as you'll see in your handout, of another outstanding gift, that of preaching. The best of ancient oratory yields the rostrum to him. Cicero bows to him, this author says, together with Sethegus, an ancient orator whom Cicero called the marrow of persuasion. You can go on to read of his ability as a philosopher, but you'll see then that there's a potential objection that this author of the poem immediately addresses. If Beza is a Christian, why is he using pagan sources? He made free use of them, pagan poetry, rhetoric, philosophy. But we read in line 28, as you'll see, that he made them serve for holy ends, and he did it through purifying them of unholiness. Line 29, And yet you give no thought to pagan talk that boasts of light but ends in darkness, sin, darkest sin and eloquently stifles godliness. This man, as you're taught, I trust, in Christian university, was able to read all the best of this world's tradition, but to do it in a Christian way which meant rejecting what was evil and holding fast to what was good. So we see for Beza that poetry and theology were not enemies. In fact, Beza's vocation as a classical Latin poet was an important means of fulfilling his vocation as a Protestant reformer. Good poetry served the purposes of good theology. And indeed, Beza's poetic learning made his godliness all the more beautiful as lines 32 to 37 describe, as you'll see, using the image of a diamond ring. As instead, as when a diamond fitly set 
shines even brighter in its nest of gold, yet dull appears when chained in lead or steel. So godly love and virtue, when they rest within a learned heart, a well-schooled soul, what harmony then rings, what light shines forth. So you see, according to this poet, Beza's life of literary cultivation, of poetic excellence, was the beautiful setting in which the diamond of the Christian life shone more brightly. That double light of poetry and piety is particularly visible in one of Beza's greatest, the least known poetic achievements, which was a Latin metrical translation of the biblical Psalms. He's well known for his French Psalms, but these are his Latin Psalms. The work to, took him ne nearly two decades to complete, and no wonder. Beza wrote a distinct Latin metrical version for all 150 Psalms, with the exception of 22 distinct settings for each section of Psalm 119. He used in all 47 different types of Latin meter, most of which he borrowed from ancient Roman poetry. To put it simply, he made David and Asaph sound like Virgil and Catullus. The title reads in English, The Psalms of David and Other Prophets in Five Books, explained through summaries and a Latin paraphrase, and also rendered into Latin with various poetic meters. As the title explains, the book featured four tiers of translation for each psalm. First came a prose summary or argument. Then in two columns, an interpretive paraphrase, and if you've got it open to the psalms, you can see it, and then a literal rendering of the Hebrew. But for our purposes, we'll focus on the main attraction of the book, which is what came after, the settings in Latin meter. Now, it should be noted before we do that Basil was not unique in this endeavor, however strange it may seem to our ears. There were many in his day. In fact, this was one of the greatest things to do as a 16th century intellectual, was to translate the Psalms into Latin verse. Rendering biblical books, and especially the Psalms, was a popular pastime of educated Europeans, both Protestant and Catholic. The Psalms were their common possession. Nor was Beza alone among the Protestants as a Latin poet. Luther loved writing a good Latin poem, and some of his Latin poetic satire cut quite sharply. Now, I could explain, but I might get in trouble because it's bad. Some of Luther's Latin poems are embarrassing, but I'll just leave it at that. You can look at my footnote if you want to find out more. His colleague, though, Melanchthon, published even more in, I think, better Latin verse, including a few settings of the Psalms himself. And even John Calvin published one poem in Latin, a hymn to the victory of Christ Jesus over the Pope and all of his forces. It's true. John Calvin didn't consider himself a very good Latin poet, so he only wrote one, but it was quite popular. He wrote it in his free time, by the way, at a at a diet, another diet of worms that he was at. So anyway, I could tell more about that. Again, if you want the paper and the footnote, you can look it up yourself. So as we look at Beza's Psalms, we're not considering a fluke of eccentric personal genius, but rather a window into the common labors of educated Christians in the 16th century. Your handout, the second page, has a translation and transcription of Beza's setting of Psalm 2. And we'll just use this as an example of the whole work. This psalm is set in the meter called the Felician Hindecasyllable. I won't ask for hands if you've heard of that. Which is most well known as the favorite meter of Catullus. I won't ask hands either, but one thing you should know about Catullus. He was an ancient Roman poet who, not unlike young Beza, had a reputation for loose living. But nonetheless, as you'll see in that 
editions going around, I've put a flag, a colored flag, in every single one where the rhythm matches the rhythm of Catullus's favorite rhythm. Beza, the Christian, was willingly and strongly influenced by this pagan poet, and it shows even in how he translated the Bible. It's a rhythmic syncopated rhythm, which you can hear as I read the first two verses. Gentium furor unde tantus hic est, sic frustra populus tumultuari, sic reges properare congitatos, sic guninquideum qua praeputentis, reges a domino caput peruntum, factae gimpia principes movere. Now, did you know Latin poetry was so fun? Now, just think, you'll enjoy it now. If you understood it, it'd be like so much better. So I'm going to give you it in English. And preserving the rhythm, as you'll hear, the effect's not entirely unlike modern rap or spoken word poetry. Nations rage, where does such a madness come from? Why in vain are the people so in uproar? Why do kings so incited hasten quickly? Why against God and together against the head of the great king by the Lord of the oil anointed, godless deeds such as these do rulers foment? I'll read other portions of the poem. I'd like to read the whole, but it won't. you can read it on your own. Listen again, though, for the driving rhythm, but more importantly, how it matches the driving, insistent message of this psalm, that the Father has placed his Son, Jesus Christ, on the throne of the ages, and therefore his enemies will all be destroyed, and he and all who trust in him will never be moved. I'll start in verse 9, the Father speaking to the Son. Hear a rod made with hardened iron, so that you may crush all the heads of the rebellious. And that easily, and to you no trouble more than that which a potter makes, when on the wheel he breaks, as he wished, the pot with one blow. Put off, therefore, at last your wild raging. Kings, be wise, now I pray, and all you princes who hold sway over lands throughout the whole world. Now, fear God, serve him willingly, and show him as your God fitting praise and veneration, Joy and trembling united in his worship. Hands flung wide on your knees, come and surrender to his son. Him embrace and freely love him, lest his wrath, once you foolishly awaken, which if once should begin to burn, then you must be destroyed, all of you, (coughs) completely ruined. Even so, they with every good are gladdened who trust God on the Lord alone relying. I trust you heard how Beza's setting captures well the, the psalm's message and how it marshals poetic power for the sake of spiritual power. And such was the exact purpose of all of Beza's psalms, that those who read them might, as God commands in Psalm 2, come on their knees and surrender to the Son, embracing Jesus Christ and freely loving him. The goal of these psalms, as we'll now see in more detail, was personal worship. To understand this goal, we'll first consider Beza's own testimony of what his Latin psalms did for him and what he expected them to do for others. In his dedicatory letter in that book of Latin psalms, he expressed three related purposes for his work. In the first place, Beza expressed concern that Christians often miss the true meaning of the psalms because of poor translations on the one hand and poor interpretation on the other And he cited as examples, well-known examples, Jerome's Vulgate and Augustine's Psalms commentaries. On the other hand, his Beza's careful attention to the Hebrew and to the modern scholarly interpretations of his day would, he intended, give Christians a more accurate Psalter and therefore help them enjoy it with greater spiritual fruit. 
Because of the great need for accuracy in biblical interpretation, Beza praised the blessings of Renaissance humanism, describing the gift of the three languages. Anyone want to guess? What were the three languages that the Renaissance brought us? Liberty students. French? Nope. No, they learned that from the cradle. You didn't have to go to school to learn French. At least not in Geneva. All right, what two languages was the Bible written in? You're, you're doing something. Yeah, this is good. Okay. Greek and Hebrew and the third language the Bible's written in? Thank you. But what would be the third language? Not the language of the Bible, but of history? Thank you. Good. All right. Very good. But he described those gift of three languages as, get this, poured out again from heaven upon the church. Why do you think he said again? What did he think the Renaissance was, com- what was he comparing it to? Pentecost. As if the Renaissance and the recovery of tongues was like a new Pentecost in the church. He warned, however, against scholars who work merely for personal gain and not for the good of God's people. The point of theological study, Beza insisted, was usefulness to the church of Christ. In the second place, Beza described the process by which he came to write Latin Psalms, not just to abbreviate this. Calvin encouraged him especially, but he wrote them after he wrote his French versions because they had been such a blessing not only to the church but to his own soul. And he wrote these psalms originally as a devotional exercise, using the skills he developed in school for his own spiritual encouragement. He, in his own words, afterward more and more delighted by reading and reflecting on the French psalms. I tried also to turn a few into Latin meters, not of course because I thought I could in any way attain to the dignity of the Holy Spirit but so that by fixing what I had read more deeply in my soul, the exercise would do me good. And that perhaps is the clearest evidence from Beza's own pen of the purpose of his psalms for spiritual devotion. And that really that was behind all of his poetic endeavors, even when it wasn't the psalms. In, in testimony of that, he wrote at 77 years old to encourage a young noblewoman who showed literary promise this. If you continue to write poetry, your soul will receive consolation from it. And it will lift you higher and more devoutly toward heaven than you could have imagined possible. In the third place, returning to Beza's preface, it's clear that he wanted not only himself but others to enjoy the spiritual benefit that he had received from the Latin Psalms. And that's why ultimately he published them. Now he published them despite the odd and somewhat embarrassing fact that in Geneva, his own city, was published another set of Latin Psalms that went on to be the greatest hit of all time of this genre by a man named George Buchanan. And he was very well aware that this had just been published and he's about to publish his own. And he was pretty discouraged. But he said that his friends convinced him to have hope that his work would be not unpleasing nor entirely unprofitable. He was also encouraged by the fact that many others besides Buchanan had written similar books And some of them were really bad. So he was probably going to be not quite as bad as some of them. But the chief thing in his mind was this. He said, I will be greatly satisfied if my work is not useless for the church. And from all we can tell, Beza was satisfied by the response from his fellow believers. In testimony of this, we read a number of praise poems, poetic book blurbs, if you like which other famous Christian poets of Beza's day had prepared before publication for placement in that book there. It's going around. One written in Hebrew, written in Hebrew, let that sink in, two in Greek, and four in Latin. 
The words of Beza's fellow Genevan pastor poet, Antoine de la Fay, represent those of all. Oh, Beza, to what heights you transport me. To heaven high I'm raised, and by your lead I walk and pick good fruit from fields of stars. And he concludes, throughout the age to come, succeeding sons shall praise this learned man who taught our race to cling to God and serve him with our minds. Now, perhaps Beza's Latin poetry may not transport you quite high enough to pick good fruit from fields of stars. But at least you can see clearly from this poem that Beza did succeed in his goal of stirring up other Christians to personal love and devotion. My judgment is indeed that for Beza and for those who read his work, Latin poetry was an excellent motivation for personal worship. Especially in the form of translations of the biblical Psalms, Beza's Latin poetry was a means for God's people more and more to learn to serve God with their minds, as well as with their heart, soul, and strength. Godly literature, and especially godly poetry, was a great help for godly living. If we move for a moment from Beza's day to ours, this kind of literary piety is not as strange as it may sound to our modern ears. Every Christian no matter the level of his education, should recognize that poetry is basic to piety. And I'll prove it. Every one of you has, I hope from your cradles, if not at least here, have learned and imbibed ancient Hebrew verse in expert English translation. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Another clear example is the hymns, whether psalm settings or non-inspired poems that we sing in corporate worship. As in the Reformation, so today. In faithful churches, this liturgical poetry sinks deep into our hearts and rises into our memory and out of our mouths throughout the week, borne along by familiar tunes. In this way, the work of some of the church's most learned and literate minds, think of Martin Luther, Isaac Watts, Samuel Wesley, becomes the daily meditation of all. It's not too strong to say that poetry is part of the substance of Christianity. Therefore, we should never set book learning and liberal arts over against warm Christian devotion. Poetry, in a sense, is the crown of both. And that shows that they belong together. God forbid that by opposing learning and devotion, we are left with unbelieving literacy or illiterate Christianity. Beza did repent of his early poetic sins, but nonetheless went on to use his poetic skill to help himself and others to worship and glorify God. But I conclude not only with a plea for the appreciation of poetry, but also for the learning of Latin. Latin is useful, a useful and sadly much neglected tool for the development of wholesome Christian piety. Hope you students are listening. It was the major language of Christianity from the early Middle Ages until well after the Reformation, over a thousand years. Think, without it, I could not have presented today on Beza. But nor could we have had this conference on the Reformation, because my friends, the Reformation was written in Latin. Without Latin, no one can read Calvin's Institutes. Luther is the freedom of a Christian, or for that matter, Aquinas' Summa Theologiae, or Augustine's Confessions. Indeed, without Latin, we are unable to communicate with nearly any of our great fathers in the faith who lived before the 18th century. 
To say we have English translations today is to miss the fact that someone had to know Latin to make those translations, and that a large majority of historic Latin works, including that entire book, save the paper I gave you, is untranslated. But the need to read is not the only reason to learn Latin. Indeed, it must always be subordinate to another need, the need for which Basil Rose's Latin Psalms, the need to worship. Now, God forbid we return to corporate worship in Latin. But I dare say that Latin will always be, for those with the proper gifts and education, a great help for private devotion. A skilled Latinist has a direct connection with the minds and hearts of some of the godliest men that have ever lived. Through Latin, we feel Augustine's anguish over the sins of his youth. Luther's passion to deliver God's people from bondage to dead works. Calvin's profound humility and zeal for pure worship. Through Latin, the poetry that inflamed Basil with love for Christ, consoling his soul and lifting him higher and more devotedly toward heaven than he had imagined possible, might do the same for you. You've been listening to a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, please visit www.gpts.edu.